I'd like to draw your attention to John chapter 3, verses 14 through 17. As we continue on in our study of the Gospel of John, and in particular in this great, great chapter, a chapter that begins with a visit, a visitation from a man named Nicodemus to Jesus. A man who was a Pharisee, a religious ruler of the Jewish people, a member of the Sanhedrin, the ruling group in Israel, a master teacher, as we are told, a master teacher of Israel. A man who was to know the law and the word of God and be devoted to that word. And he came to Jesus by night for probably no other reason than to have a a good, clear and open talk with Jesus. As many of us would have probably done, we would have written down a lot of questions and wanted to make sure that we phrase our questions properly to someone that had made an impact on Israel and in particular in Jerusalem one day when Jesus had entered into the courtyard of the temple and realized that there was a lot of merchandising going on and he overturned the tables of the money changers and and had the people who were selling animals there for sacrifices to take everything out of there because his father's house was not a house of merchandise. And this certainly stirred the interest of these religious leaders. Nicodemus possibly was encouraged to go and talk to Jesus But I think under the leadership of the the Holy Spirit, he was the perfect one to come to Jesus because not only was he inquisitive, but he was also interested and sincere to know the truth. And they uh, met and he probably, with all his questions, began with a simple introduction. We know that you are a teacher come from God for no one can do the things that you do except you come from God and Jesus without any hesitation changes the whole picture of the interview and he says verily verily I say unto you except a man be born again he cannot see the kingdom of God And at that point, Nicodemus probably threw all his questions away. And he had only one question. How can this be? How can this be? Can a man enter into his mother's womb a second time? And Jesus said to him, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Jesus had now turned this interview into an outreach and an inreach as he reached into the heart of this man. 
and stirred up his own understanding of things. A man that should have known the Word of God. A man that should have known all about the things that he was asking Jesus about. Jesus said, marvel not that I said unto you, you must be born again. The Spirit is blowing. You you know what's there, but you don't know where it comes from and where it's going, but it's there. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. And again, Nicodemus says, how can these things be? And Jesus said to him, listen, you're you're a master teacher and, and you don't know these things. You're a master teacher of Israel, a master teacher who's supposed to know the Word of God. And throughout the Word of God, there are so many references to going from darkness to light, from death to life. And you don't know these things? And he tells them, he says, you know, we speak that we, which we know and, 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 and we testify that which we've seen. We, he says, you come with a we, well, I'll give you a we. We know what we're talking about. And yet you don't receive it. And in verse 13, Jesus in effect tells him, you've come to the right person in the right place. Because only one that has ascended into heaven and come, as he puts it, no man has ascended up to heaven, but he that cometh down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. So you've come to the right person. And now with one more picture, one more illustration from the Word, Jesus says this to Nicodemus. And this is where we begin today in verse 14. He says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have eternal life, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. There are many commentators who believe that that verse 16 is, is actually John's commentary on the last two verses. That may be possible. But whether Jesus said it or John wrote it, it was still inspired by the Holy Spirit. This one great verse, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. Now Jesus drew a line in the sand. Before Nicodemus. He drew a line in the sand and he said to him, Listen Nicodemus, we or ye? We or ye? Jesus had already told him, We speak what we know and testify what we've seen. But you have not received it. So, it's either we or ye. Ye meaning you collectively, you who come as a representative of the scribes and the Pharisees of the, of the Sanhedrin. The Pharisee and the master teacher of Israel was still siding with the wrong crowd. He hadn't received what Jesus had told him. He was still following the blind leaders of the blind who boasted in the weight of tradition that they carried, but they were ignorant of scriptural, spiritual truth. 
The Lord also pointed out to him that if he had trouble dealing with earthly truths, in other words, the pictures, the illustrations, the shadows, and the types of the Old Testament that all pointed to the new, the new birth, how could he grasp and handle heavenly truths being the reality and the fulfillment of those types? How could he grasp those truths without faith? Because that was going to be the real issue here. In who do you trust? In what do you trust, Nicodemus? It seems that the man who came by night to meet with Jesus was still in the dark. He had the light of the Hebrew Scriptures, but was still blind to its spiritual richness. And I want to add something to that thought here. He had the light of the Hebrew Scriptures, but was still blind to its richness. And I think how often we who have Bibles, each and every one of us, I'm sure there has to be at least one Bible in our households, that if we were in the very same position of having an opportunity to have an audience with Jesus, would go and prepare and look from Genesis to Revelation and ask all or, or write down all the questions that we want to ask of Jesus. And then we would show up and say, well, look, Jesus, this is what it says here, 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 and here. But Nicodemus didn't have that luxury, but he did have something that was in his heart. He grew up knowing the word of God. In those days, they had a place where they kept the scriptures, where they kept the scrolls in the synagogue. The places where they could go and read them, but they had to learn them and they had to memorize them. He didn't come with all of his scrolls to Jesus, but he came with the knowledge of the word of God. How much more we that have the word of God and still don't have the spiritual richness of this word in our minds and in our hearts. I'm encouraging you, by the way, get into the Word of God. If you want to know Jesus, and you want to know Him more, and you want to know Him better. You see, the religious leaders that He represented claimed to believe Moses. If they really believed Moses, they would believe Jesus. But they say they believed in Moses, yet they didn't believe Jesus. They couldn't believe Jesus. And as a whole, they concerned themselves with the praise of men more than with the praise of God. Consider this. What was it that they really missed? What did they miss? Let's look at John chapter 12 for a moment, verses 42 through 50. I know that we'll get to it later on. But let's look at this. This speaking of... Jesus, it says, nevertheless, among the chief rulers, also many believed on him, on Jesus. The, the chief rulers, so again, we're dealing with the leadership of, of, of the Jews, of the Jewish people. Those who were leaders in the Jewish religion, especially the chief rulers in, in Jerusalem. It says, among the chief rulers, many believed on Jesus. They believed what he was saying. And y'all remember something that James wrote in his letter? He said, even the demons believe and tremble? The difference is in the next phrase. Nevertheless, among the chief rulers also many believed on him, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him. Fear. 
They were afraid of something. But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. They were afraid that they were going to lose their reputation. They were going to lose a, a, a sense of their cultural and religious comfort zone. Where they would be recognized and to some extent glorified. How do we know that? Well, in the next verse it says, For they love the praise of men more than the praise of God. They love the praise of men more than the praise of God. Jesus cried and he said, He that believeth on me believeth not on me, but on him that sent me. Now, this, this form of language here is, is supposed to be directed actually toward the one who sent Jesus. So you're not just believing in me, you're believing in the one who sent me. Well, who sent him? The Father sent him, right? So we know then who he's speaking of. He says, Jesus Christ, it says, Jesus Christ and said, He that believeth on me, believeth not on me, but on him that sent me, and he that seeth me, seeth him that sent me. Now we know from the very first three verses of, of the uh, of the book of Hebrews that Jesus Christ himself is the express image of God the express image of the Father the express image of the one true God he that sees me sees him that sent me and then he says I am come a light into the world The Jewish leaders should have understood this. You can go all the way back to Isaiah chapter 9 where it says, you know, the people that walked in darkness shall see a marvelous light. Speaking of the coming of Jesus to this earth. He says, I am come a light into the world that whosoever believeth. There's that phrase again. Wonderful phrase. That whosoever believeth on me should not abide in darkness and if any man hear my words and believe not I judge him not now, people want to stop there and say well you see Jesus doesn't judge us well let's read on he says if any man hear my words and believe not I judge him not for I came not to judge the world but to save the world as we, as we saw in, in verse 17 of John chapter 3 but then notice this, he that rejecteth me and receiveth not my words has one that judges him. Notice what it is. The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. The word that I have spoken, the word of God judges on the last day. The word goes forth, we either believe it or we don't. We either receive it or reject it. Simple as that. You're given the opportunity to receive a free gift. You can accept it or reject it. For I have not spoken of myself, but the Father which sent me, He gave me a commandment, what I should say and what I should speak. And notice this. And I know that His commandment is life everlasting. Isn't that an interesting statement? I know that His commandment, God's command, His Father's commandment, is life everlasting. That is what He is commanding. 
That's not a suggestion, it's a command. I know that His commandment is life everlasting whatsoever I speak, therefore, even as the Father said unto me, so I speak. Now, to fully understand this last statement of Jesus here in this verse, we need to consider 1 John chapter 5, verses 11 and 12. So I encourage you to go there in your Bibles, 1 John 5, verses 11 and 12. Because here it says, and this is the record, which means this is the testimony or the witness. This is the record that God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. This life is in His Son. This is what He has commanded. Then he says, he that has the Son has life, and he that has not the Son of God has not life. And this again reinforces the gospel of Jesus Christ that tells us that eternal life can only come through Jesus Christ. There is no other to whom it can come. There is no other thing, no other person, no other belief. Jesus himself in John 14, 6, and we all should know this. Jesus said, I am the way, the only way, the only truth, the only life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto me, or no man cometh unto the Father except through me. No man cometh unto the Father except through me. There's no other way. There's no other person. And it brings us to that, this, this very interesting thought, you know, of, of, of the conversation that Jesus is having, you know, here with Nicodemus and all of these things. And it's as if what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus is, listen, Nicodemus, religion doesn't save you. Your religion doesn't save you. Your riches won't save you. Your reputation doesn't save you. And in effect, to those who are hearing this conversation in the church today, listen to this. The church doesn't save you. There are some people who think that their church will save them. The church doesn't save you. Other believers can't save you. Only Jesus. Only the person and work of Jesus Christ, trusting in and believing Him, saves you. And Jesus isn't done with Nicodemus. And I'm thankful for that because it gives us a great picture of the pursuit that Jesus places upon a a heart and a soul that is in need of salvation. Some of us might get frustrated telling people about the Lord and saying this and this and this and they just won't, you know, that's enough. I'm not telling you anything else. Jesus didn't stop. He didn't stop. He set before Nicodemus one more picture. One more shadow. One more type. From the scriptures. And he said there in verse 14, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. We're talking about being born again. We're talking about going from death to life, going from darkness to light. And he says to him, Nicodemus, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And he adds this, 
that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. In essence, this was Jesus' answer to all of Nicodemus' questions. To all of his questions. The full truth of which probably wouldn't dawn on Nicodemus until Christ was nailed to the cross. It may very well be that on that day that Jesus was put on that cross, that Nicodemus finally added two and two and got four. We know that Nicodemus would be there. What is important to note here, though, is that Jesus always directed Nicodemus back to the Scriptures. He always directed Nicodemus back to the Scriptures, as Jesus did with everyone that he confronted, or everyone that confronted him. The enemy, Satan, when he confronted him in the, in the great testings in the wilderness, the temptations in the wilderness, what did Jesus always come back with? The Word of God. So he directed Nicodemus back to the scriptures, not to worthless speculations or rabbinic traditions. He he takes him back to the book of Numbers, chapter 21, verses 4 through 9. A passage that Nicodemus was certainly familiar with. Because Numbers is a part of the Torah, the law of God. And the Pharisees loved the law of God. And they dedicated themselves to it. He knew this story. Numbers 21, verses 4 through 9. It tells us there that they, the children of Israel, journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to compass the land of Edom. And the soul of the people was much discouraged because of the way. And this was just always happening during that, that, that time of, of, of journeying and, and sojourning through the, through the wilderness. Eleven years. They did this. Eleven years they sojourned. Eleven years they, they murmured and complained about everything. It makes you wonder, you know, eleven years, it should have only taken them a few weeks. At best, a week. Eleven years in the wilderness. They were discouraged because of the way, which, which just means that the, the Lord had commanded Moses to take him a different way than they were going. And so the people complained, and they murmured. Of course, that doesn't happen in the church anymore. But notice what happens in verse 5, And the people spake against God and against Moses, Wherefore have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? Always that wonderful way of getting good things from God. Right? They spoke against God and against Moses. You've only brought us up out here to die. For there is no bread, neither is there any water, and our soul loatheth this light bread. The manna that God was giving them from heaven that was sustaining them. We don't want this light bread. That's only 45 calories a slice. We want the other one, 120 calories a slice. That, you know, a little richer stuff. Right? Oh, their complaints. But notice, verse 6, And the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and much people of Israel died. In other words, a lot of people died. 
for the complaining. And therefore the people came to Moses and they said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against thee. Pray unto the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. And Moses prayed for the people. There's something very significant about Moses here that we need to remember. If it had been any of us, we'd have said, you know what? You're on your own now. We've told you time and time again, you need to trust the Lord. But you're not trusting the Lord. I'm not going to pray for you. But that wasn't the character of the heart of Moses. Why? Because Moses... Here is a type of Jesus. Who intercedes for us today at this very moment, this very hour? The Bible tells us that Jesus is our intercessor. Moses is a type of Jesus praying for us. We certainly need that, don't we? How many made it through this week from last Monday to today unscathed, No sin, no bad thoughts, no ugly words. Not too many hands going up. No hands should go up. Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said unto Moses, Make thee a fiery serpent. Here the word fiery has to do with the appearance of the serpent, the color of the serpent, being that whatever he made it out of, either copper or brass or or bronze, would reflect this particular color. The Lord said unto Moses, Make thee a fiery serpent and set it upon a pole. And it means really a high pole so that everyone could see it in the camp of Israel. And it shall come to pass that everyone that is bitten, when he looketh upon it, shall live. Wow. Seems simple enough, doesn't it? If you just look at the bronze serpent on the pole, if you were bitten, then you shall live. Now what is understood here, or what is implied here? What is implied here is that you trust this to look to that serpent for healing. You're trusting something that is not natural here, something that is not reasonable here. You're trusting something that you have to have faith in to receive a healing. You have to look with faith. And Moses made a serpent of brass and put it upon a pole. And it came to pass that if a serpent had bitten any man, when he beheld the serpent of brass, he lived. When he looked upon that serpent, he lived. Because he looked upon it for the healing. He looked upon it for the deliverance from the pain. Jesus was teaching a lot of things to Nicodemus by telling him as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. Jesus was teaching Nicodemus the value of scriptural typology and parallelism. 
There's something to compare with this with. He said, as Moses, even so must the Son of Man. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up. The combination of these words many times indicates a parallel. In this case, a parallel between the last miracle performed by the Lord while the children of Israel were being led by Moses and Christ being lifted up on the cross of Calvary. That's the parallel. Nicodemus would have known the story well. He would have known that it was a story, it was a, a true account, but it was a story of sinfulness. For the nation and the people of Israel rose in rebellion against God and were worthy of punishment. It was a story of the Lord God sending these fiery serpents to inflict pain by biting the people. This was judgment. And many died, and by the way, they died without hope. As many people today are dying without the hope of Christ. But it was also a story of God's grace. As we see Moses interceding for the people and the Lord providing a remedy for their afflictions. Moses was commanded to make a bronze or brass serpent and hang it high on a pole. It was then lifted up for all to see. Jesus would one day say, And if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. If I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. Think about this statement that Jesus makes. That throughout this whole world today, in every continent, in every nation, People know about Jesus. They may not like Him. They may not love Him. There are some that do. Others that don't. But how interesting all men are drawn to the cross. Whether in spite or in love. All men will be drawn to the cross. Jesus did not lie about that, did He? Because He never lies about anything. And the serpent was lifted up. Many believed. You could also look, like today, you could look at the cross and not believe, right? Anyone stricken by a serpent was to look up at the brass serpent and they would immediately be healed, making this a story of faith. When they looked by faith at the serpent, they were saved. You see, the solution to the poison of the serpent which was coursing through the victim's veins was foolishness in respect to reason. How can it be that if I just look upon this serpent that I'll be healed? You're going to approach it with that kind of Unbelief, or you can do it because you know that without doing it, you'll die. And those had to look. You see, that's the implication here. Those who looked with faith were healed. So the solution to the poison of the serpent, which was coursing through the victim's veins, was foolishness in respect to reason, but it was life 
in respect to faith. It was life. Did it have to make sense? When you're in desperate need, whatever God can do will always make sense, whether it makes sense to us or not. It doesn't make sense to have a gift laid out before us and not take it. The parallel is quite obvious here. Jesus Christ was lifted up on the cross of Calvary. And so for all sinners that are perishing, yet aware of their need and willing to abandon man's useless remedies while venturing courageously on faith and trust, there is life given for a look at the crucified one. There is life given for a look at the crucified Christ. Men today are dying from the poison of the deadly serpent, the deadly poison of sin. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in Romans 6.23, he says, For the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin for those people who were bitten by those fiery serpents was death. But the gift of God is eternal life. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. The gift of God is eternal life. God is wanting to give a gift. God gave a gift in in the wilderness experience to those who would just look upon the bronze serpent. say that most of us here, if, if, if offered a gift, we would take it? We all like gifts. Right? I mean, I'm not the only one that likes to be given gifts. I mean, we like it, you know, when it's a surprise, wow, that's, you were thinking to me, well, that's nice. What a blessed thing. Oh no, I don't, I don't want that gift. I have to earn it. I have to, get, I, have to do, I have to do something for it. You know, that's what a lot of people are saying today. Here there's a free gift being offered by the Lord if we just look upon the cross and and they said, oh, no, 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 I'll I'll find my own way to heaven. I can do it. Really? It's about time we come to the end of ourselves if that's our thinking. If that's the way we think. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. And if He's offering it, then take it. Because we need it. We're so full of sin. Because we're human. We were born in sin. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. Jew and Gentile alike. Born into this world. Sinners. Even as believers, we sometimes falter and stumble, don't we? A reminder of our need to trust in the Lord each and every day. To appreciate His Word, to get back into His Word, to love His Word, to to honor His Word, to honor Him by, by, by living in the power of the Holy Spirit and not in the power of the flesh. The serpent is a symbol of the wicked one, Satan. 
And we might say, this is kind of weird, isn't it? That as a serpent was lifted up, so will Christ be lifted up. Well, let's understand this. The serpent is a symbol of the wicked one, Satan, as described by the bookends of Scripture, Genesis, and Revelation. Genesis chapter 3 is where we meet the serpent there in the garden. A serpent that would eventually deceive and lead Eve and Adam astray by tempting them to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which God said, when you eat of that tree, you're going to die. But in Revelation chapters 12 and 20, we are given a, a little bit of an understanding of who that serpent was. We all knew it, but, but this is just to make it clear. There in Revelation 12 verse 9, it says, And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Then you go to verse, uh, chapter 20, verse 2, and it says, And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan. So, uh, interesting that the same terminology is used for, for uh, the serpent, which is that old serpent, or the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years, which is really going to become his destiny already. Now, Jesus Christ, to understand all of this, Jesus Christ, our Lord, destroyed the works of the devil, destroyed the works of the serpent, that old serpent, the devil and Satan. Jesus Christ destroyed the works of the devil by being lifted up. By being lifted up. Turn, if you will, to Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Hebrews 2, verses 14 and 15. For here it says, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same. Jesus took upon himself flesh and blood, of course. But notice what it goes on to say. He also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. So to deliver us from the bondage of sin and death, Jesus died on the cross to defeat the work of the devil and to destroy the works of of the enemy. And so the serpent, and listen carefully, so the serpent hanging upon the pole symbolized the defeat of Satan. It symbolized the defeat of Satan. And by looking upon the defeated evil, which was the serpent, Israel was healed. Making sense? The serpent hanging upon the pole symbolized the defeat of Satan. By looking upon the defeated evil, which is the serpent, Israel was healed. Today, listen, today man is healed by looking upon the Son of Man who has been lifted up upon the cross. Is it any wonder that the prophet Isaiah would testify under the influence of the Holy Spirit in Isaiah 53, that great chapter dealing with the suffering Messiah, the suffering Savior, when he says, Who has believed our report and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? And I'll say this every time that we see this passage, the arm of the Lord always refers to Jesus in the Old Testament. The arm of the Lord. In fact, when it talks about the right arm of the Lord, well, who sits at the right hand of God, the throne of God? Jesus. The right arm of the Lord. 
So who has believed our report, and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, notice that, when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. When he walked on this earth, and when he lived in, in, in the area of the Galilee, and Nazareth, and then lived, and then went down to Jerusalem to die there on the cross, when they saw him, they saw a person, a flesh and blood person. There was no beauty, no comeliness on him. There's no thing that they could desire of him just simply in the flesh. But then it goes on to say, He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. If we looked upon him, we didn't see a, a whole lot in the flesh. But then, when he went to the cross, how many people hid their faces from him? How many people that day when Jesus was on the cross really looked at the cross, really looked at what was happening that day? Very few actually knew what was going on. Very few. Even those disciples. Where were the disciples who spent three and a half years with Jesus? Where did they go? The only one we know that was there by the cross was John. We hid, as it were, our faces from Him. Even though, how many times did Jesus say to His disciples, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, and I'm going to be arrested, and I'm going to be taken, and I'm going to be beaten, and I'm going to be put on a cross, and I'm going to be crucified, and I'm going to die, but in three days I'm going to rise again. Three times that we know of, how many more times other than that, which were not written down, He was despised and we esteemed him not. In other words, by many he was rejected. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him and with his stripes. We are healed. Let's not confuse the issue here. With his stripes we are healed. Healed from what? Healed from the poison coursing through our veins. The poison of sin. The serpent was a cursed creature from the very beginning, wasn't he? We're told in Genesis 3, verses 14 and 15, the words of God to the serpent. It says, And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this. In other words, that, 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 that this serpent had deceived Eve and Adam. He lied to them. He deceived them in, 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 in a way that put doubt into their minds about their own God who had created them in His image. 
He says, because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity, which means hostility. I will put hostility between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. The seed of the woman is referring to Jesus Christ. It is referring to the Messiah. This is the prophecy of Messiah coming. And notice, it shall bruise thy head and thou shall bruise his heel. Where does that take us back to? It takes us to the cross where Jesus was lifted up. The bruising of His heel. The nail in His feet. And yet the Scriptures tell us that Jesus was made a curse for us. Jesus became a curse for man. Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 3 verse 13, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. And you can just as well say, cursed is everyone that is lifted up on a pole or nailed to a cross. Even Peter himself would say in 1 Peter 2.24, who his own self, speaking of Jesus, who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree that we being dead to sins should live unto righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. And notice again the context. By whose stripes you were healed because you looked up and believed by looking up to Jesus. And let's not forget the words of the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.21 when he says, For he has made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. He has made him to be sin for us who knew no sin. Now we get a better picture of this serpent. Why it was a serpent. Why it had to be that. And why it is that Jesus tells Nicodemus, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so, must, must, not should, but must, be lifted up. And then Jesus added the words that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life. All in all for Jesus Christ to be lifted up meant not only to be crucified but it also meant to be glorified and exalted. In other words, the crucifixion was the means of his glorification. The cross was not the end of his glory. It was the means of his glory. For we know that three days later he would do what? He would rise again from the dead. With this comes one great statement of summation. And that statement is this. Faith is to be in Christ crucified.
faith in Christ crucified. Is it any wonder that the Apostle Paul himself would actually say that he had nothing to boast in save the cross of Jesus Christ? He had nothing to boast in save the cross of Jesus Christ. What is our boast today? Do we have anything to boast of in our own lives? In our own accomplishments? Everything and anything that we have, we have only because we have a God that is so gracious and merciful, so loving and so compassionate toward us. So when we read these words, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. It brings us now to the depth of God's love. And why the Lord does what He does for a sinful people. John 3.16 has been called the world's greatest text and has been called by others the gospel in miniature. And as I said, it's truly a lesson in understanding the depths of God's love. Before we conclude today, let's consider, first of all, a few things about the love of God. First of all, let's consider the magnitude of God's love. As we look at John 3.16, Consider the magnitude of God's love. And what would that be? Very simply, He gave His only begotten Son. That is the magnitude of God's love. He gave His only begotten Son. How did He give His only begotten Son? He gave His only begotten Son completely, totally, fully, and absolutely. Because if He doesn't give Him that way, how can He go to the cross? How can He be lifted up if He's not given completely? Secondly, consider the reach of God's love. Consider the reach of God's love because He gave it to a sinful world. For God so loved the world. And we know what the world was like then. And it's even worse now. Yet God still loves the world. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. But the world, you know, it doesn't hear say, you know, God so loved the Jews only, or God so loved the Turkish people, God so loved the Mexicans. Thankful He does. Amen. God so loved the French. Really, He does. God so loved the Italians. It didn't say that. It just says God so loved the world. Why? Because all of us, Jew and Gentile alike, we're sinners. Paul said in Romans chapter 5 verse 8, But God commendeth His love toward us. In other words, God demonstrated His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were yet sinners, we should all be thankful that the Lord never came and said, you know, listen, as soon as you guys clean up a little bit, 
You know, I, I had the thought in, in mind of, of the father of the prodigal son. You know, he didn't send him a text one day and say to him, listen, son, as soon as you can clean up your act, as soon as you can go to, you know, whatever rehab you need to go to or do this or do that, and you know, get yourself cleaned up, then you can come back to me and then I'll think about accepting you back. Is that what the father of the prodigal son did? No, when Jesus told us that wonderful story, what did he tell us? He said that here the father every day just waiting to see, looking out at the horizon. Maybe one day he would see his son. Never knew where he was, never knew what his condition was. But one day on the horizon he saw his son coming back. His son was stinky. He was filthy. He smelled like pigs because he was eating with the pigs in the pig styes. And he saw his son and he ran to his son. And he ran and he fell upon his neck and he kissed him. But he kissed him and hugged him and he loved him. And then he gave him a ring and he gave him a robe and he gave him shoes. And he gave him a feast. But God demonstrated and commended His love toward us even uh, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's the reach of God's love. And then there is the impartiality of God's love. The impartiality of God's love is found in our in the title of our of our uh, message today. Whosoever believeth, whosoever believeth, Jew and Gentile alike. That's all there is actually in this world. You're either a Jew or you're a Gentile. I mean, that's that's bottom line, isn't it? But whosoever will come. Come to Jesus. Come to me all that are heavy laden and burdened. He doesn't distinguish. He just says, come. In the last chapter of the book of Revelation, the last chapter of the book of the Bible, it says, and the spirit and the bride say, come, and and let him that heareth say, come, and let him that is a thirst come, and Whosoever will. Whosoever. Let him take the water of life freely. The offer is for all. To come. And then there's the beneficial richness of God's love. We all know what that is, right? The beneficial richness of God's love is life everlasting. Everlasting life. Sounds like something we all should want. Without question. If we could believe that we, by just looking with faith on the cross of Jesus Christ, that we would be saved... Then it's not that hard to believe that we will live forever with God and with Christ in His kingdom. 
guys just tired here? Or is it getting through? I'm just wondering. I know, it's getting a little warm in here, right? Maybe that's it. You think it's hot here? All right. There is, another, there is a problem, though, or dilemma. There is a limitation to God's love. There is a limitation to God's love. Very simply, unbelievers are not saved. Unbelievers are not saved. God loves all. But unbelievers are not saved. Listen to these words, which is where we'll begin next time in John three seventeen and 18. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned. Wow. Whew. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already. Now, folks, remember this. That's where we were. Because we were all born in sin and we were falling short of the glory of God every day. We were spiritually dead until we looked to Jesus in faith. So he that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the Son, uh, in the name of the only begotten Son of God. But folks, listen to this. If you look at Romans chapter 8 verse 1, what does it say? There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. So he that believes on him is not condemned. But he that believeth not is condemned already. So again, have you looked to the cross with faith and trust and belief? As the Israelites looked upon the serpent and were healed of those serpent bites. They were healed because they trusted in something that didn't make sense. It wasn't some form of medication that came out of the ground or out of great research. It was simply look and be healed. Look and be saved. Make quickly end with the with a story I tell often but in a way I want to complete that story it's about the conversion of a young man whose name was Charles Spurgeon he was a young man who was born into a Christian home as it were parents who were godly parents brought it brought up in the home of his grandfather who was a who was a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ, a godly man who had a tremendous library that uh, Spurgeon was able to uh, partake of all of his young life for many, many years. But Spurgeon was very much like Nicodemus. 
may have had a lot of head knowledge and a lot of traditional knowledge about things, but there was an emptiness there. At the age of 15, Spurgeon struggled with his own salvation. And one day as he walked out into the streets of London to go to a church, it was during one of the worst snowstorms of the time. And he had problems getting to this big church that he was going to go to. Ended up walking into the first church that he saw, and it was a small little primitive Methodist church that it was called at the time. Not very many people in it. It was a small church. Went and found a pew to sit in by himself. Hopefully not to be seen by anyone. The pastor had problems getting to the church and so there was no one to, to lead the worship service that morning except for a, a man who was probably a, a servant or a deacon or an elder in the church and he got up and, and as Spurgeon recounts, he, he says this man wasn't real literate as it were and you tell by his, his manner of speech that he was probably a farmer of some sort. But the man went up and opened up the Bible and the Scriptures, and he, and he read from Isaiah 45, verse 22, that says, Look unto me, and be ye saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is none else. And that was his text. And he mumbled and stumbled over a few words, and this and that, and, and all. But then he would say, Now look, it, it, it doesn't take a lot to look. You don't have to earn a degree to look. Even a child can look. And then in a moment he reached his eyes over to where Spurgeon was sitting and he looked at Charles Spurgeon and he said to him and he pointed to him and he said, Young man, look unto Jesus Christ and be saved. And at that very moment, Charles Spurgeon knew in his own heart that he had been touched by the Holy Spirit of God and was saved and from that moment became a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ to the extent that he became one of the greatest preachers in England in sending so many people in the latter part of the 19th century so many people through the reach of the British Empire into many many different uh, countries and the gospel spread and even to this country the effects of Spurgeon's ministry reached all because he was told to look unto Jesus have you looked unto Jesus we're told in Hebrews chapter 12 verse 2 looking unto Jesus the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross and despising the shame has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Have you looked unto Jesus? Has your heart been stirred this morning to look unto Jesus? Shall we pray? Lord, this is the time 
that we ask that you, through the power of your Holy Spirit, would move upon our hearts and stir our hearts, Lord God, through your truth, through your word, and through your pursuit of our own lives and hearts. Strengthen us this day to do that which we cannot do for ourselves, to reach into the hearts of those here today who need you, who recognize their need and their emptiness, and who will today look to you to set them free from the bondage of sin and death. Lord, whatever it takes for you to touch their hearts today, so that they leave here no longer empty, but filled with your spirit, filled with your salvation, filled with your truth, filled with all that you are, Lord, and all that you have given in the gift of eternal life. Lord, I pray right now you have your way with us. Strengthen us, we ask. Fill us, we pray. Use us as we go out into this world. In Jesus' name, amen. And amen.